Hi, Scott here. Just a quick thing before we roll into the episode. Just recently, I've put together this little uh, free guide for DIY indie labels that basically takes a lot of the knowledge and wisdom that I've heard from these label owners and managers that I've interviewed through these episodes, I distill some of that information and I put it into this little PDF that you can get by going to otherrecordlabels.com. I think you'll find it really helpful. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. It's a free guide. So make sure you go to otherrecordlabels.com to check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm Scott Orr and thanks for listening. Um, Please subscribe if you haven't already. You can reach out to me at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com if you have any suggestions or questions. Very exciting. We haven't done seasons, um, so to speak, with this podcast. I've intended to just kind of keep the train rolling. Um, However, if you are listening to this in sequence, thank you. Um, But we're going to take a a short little break over the Christmas holidays. Uh, If you're not listening to this in sequence, and this is irrelevant, and it's probably summertime in 2025, and whatever. But um, there is going to be a, one, one of the things I'm excited about, and there's some great episodes coming up, but I'm excited about shifting a little bit into um, talking with some people at record labels, always, um, who have a little bit of more of a specific focus in their role. And, and, uh, and we're also going to camp out on some more specific subjects, just in case you thought, wow, 16 episodes later, I feel like I know a lot about record labels. I'm going to stop listening to this podcast. Well, don't do that. That would be a really dumb move. Um, thank you for listening today. A great label, Captured Tracks, and I'm talking with Mike Sniper. Um, and this is an incredible label. I say that all the time, and I mean it all the time. I really do. But this was one of those times where, you know, going through um, their roster and their old roster um, and looking at, you know, Craft Spells and Wild Nothing, uh, the new the new artist Chastity, which which is, uh, that's an incredible record, um, Widow Speak and the, the new Molly Birch, just looking through this label, oh, Mac DeMarco, of course, and uh, just thinking um, this is such an incredible label. Um, and this conversation is not one to be missed. Well, I, we actually talked about this on the podcast before because, I mean, we're a bunch of labels uh, talking to each other and, and labels sharing information, and it's like the idea of competition between labels is so ridiculous because, you know, there's never a... It's not like we're two roofing companies, you know? There's not, there's not like a music fan who is holding one record in one hand and the other in the other and like saying sell me on which one i should buy (laughs) the competitive nature of it is only very brief when let's say there's an artist the multiple labels want to sign right okay that's That's, fair yeah that's about it i mean once once that's decided like you know life basically moves on Mm. um yeah i'm not aware we don't really go up to bat um you know, pitching ourselves. Right. <laughs> um, we generally just say like, here's our first and best offer. And we want to work with people who are excited with us. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, people should definitely, artists should definitely get the best deal they possibly can. Um, hmm. But I just, I just don't really go too far down that road. Right. I want things to just kind of start at an equal enthusiasm level. Um, I want to talk about, Obviously, we're here to talk about captured tracks. According to your website, the name of the label came from um, a self-released EP of yours that fans mistook as the name of your label. Is that right? Sort of. Okay. Um, basically, I, I had a band 
called Blank Dogs, and we, I, it was a home recording project, but I had a, a band for it when I toured. Mm. And I had a bunch of songs that were a little bit more experimental than the than the typical stuff I'd release on on records or 45s. And so I was like, well, there's enough here to make kind of an interesting tour CDR. And it was mm. called Captured Tracks Volume 1. Um, I don't know where that name really came from. It just kind of, I didn't really think too hard about names. Yeah, it's, it's great. And, and then um, it was being assembled by my friends, Cassie and Katie from Vivian Girls. They were putting together these CDRs. Hmm. Um, they were kind of cool looking CDRs. They had a silkscreen jacket and stuff. And um, so they were putting them together for me. And uh, I was going to put out the first two 12 inches, and I was wondering what label I should call it. And then Cassie from Vivian Girls was like, why should you just call it Capture Tracks? And that CDR could be. That's kind of, so it was oh, yeah. kind of accidental. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and so that, yeah, so that CDR came out, and I wasn't aware at the time that that would be the label, but that came out not on a label, but now. It's kind of seen as our first release. Oh, okay. The, the the volume one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a great name. It's a really great name. Um. <clears throat> so what now? Okay. So you wanted to self-release your own stuff. Is that right? Like, what? How did the label form originally? Well, well it wasn't necessarily a, a huge desire to release my own stuff. It was. Um. I'd had a couple of really small labels that only lasted a little bit. One was a purely reissue label called Radio Heartbeat, and I had a partner in that, and it just kind of dissolved. And um, I had gotten more interested in current music again. I was kind of dissatisfied with independent music for the majority of the late 90s, early aughts, and mid-aughts. And then I started touring and hearing bands that I really liked again. And I was working as a buyer, <clears throat> and Pricer at Academy Records in Brooklyn. It's actually the same time that Caleb from Sacred Bones was doing the same thing there. Mm. We started our labels around the same time. Wow. Um, so I actually put out a 12-inch on Caleb's label, and then I did a couple other records. And I, at that point, I knew enough about distribution from working at record stores and from touring that I decided, well, I might as well just start putting out new music that I wanted to release myself, not only my own music, but other people's music. How did you know you had a knack for the, the business side of music? I had no idea. It was just a matter of <laughs> well, How did you have the confidence? Well, I mean, I had some sense of, I mean, I guess I have a natural business acumen. My, most of my family are or were entrepreneurs at some point and just no fear, I guess. Yeah. Well, a big part of that is becoming an entrepreneur is fully investing yourself in something with the possibility of failure. Right. It's the most important part of starting a record label, more so than obviously having a good ear and you know knowing a good artist when you hear one and a direction for the label. But really, if you're not willing to invest yourself and throw yourself fully in it, hmm. then it's not really it's never going to amount to where you want it to be there's very few situations where someone kind of you know stays at a day job while also having a big record label i don't know if it ever happens right um, right it's kind of like you just have to take the plunge fully and invest everything to it so i'd had saved up some money and i was still working and still touring when i started the label 
Um, and then actually when I saw that it was getting to the point where I could live off it, I quit uh, my job and I quit touring. Hmm. So That must have been a pretty fulfilling moment. Sort of. I mean, in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to have a record label, but it wasn't something that I thought would ever grow to what it is now. Because I was, I kind of, post-college, um, I got myself involved in as many different things I was interested in as possible. Hmm. So I was doing a lot of um, illustration work, actually. Oh, I went okay. to art school. And so I was doing illustration work for shows and for uh, artists, for record labels and stuff. So I did some work for Jay Retard and uh, Dead Moon and Black Lips, stuff like that. Hmm. Um, so that was that was a little bit of, of how, at the same time, I was touring in a punk band. and um, But I was also doing, you know, I've always been interested in used records and I always wanted to own a record store. And I was flirting with the idea of just being an illustrator. And I was kind of waiting to see which thing took off first. Yeah. <laughs> Does, I mean, one of the things I like about the record label environment is and this is a question for you, is does running a record label allow you to kind of play in all those different little sandboxes? It did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did most of the layout and flyers and all that kind of stuff myself. Um, then, you know, as time goes, I mean, now we're a large enough company where I've kind of sourced myself out in terms of employees and what right. everybody else does. Right. I mean, now we have two designers on staff. Wow. You know, we have uh, three project managers, a product manager, finance manager. We have, you know, yeah. we have like a staff of 13 now. So, wow. I mean. Congratulations. I, thanks. Yeah, it freaks me out all the time. <laughs> but, I mean, I, um, <clears throat> that includes uh, things that are tangentially related to the label, too, like the shop and sure. the warehouse. Yeah. But, but, I mean, we, we – um, yeah, I mean, I've actually tried lately to try to get back into that, the creative aspect yeah. of, because I mean, the weird thing is, once you get to this point, um, as a business owner, not only as a label owner in a music industry, but I mean, I talk to other business owners, and at some point, it gets, it almost is where, when by the time something gets to me, something's wrong, you know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. So I'm. I'm dealing with damage control sure. all the time, or hey, we don't know what to do at this point, or there's some kind of the fire to put out, or something like mm -hmm. that, or I or I started the fire, maybe. Right. <laughs> um, and so you know, I'm trying now to get invested back into the more creative aspects of of the job. Um, the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. <laughs> what? So you you started it in? Is it was it two thousand nine? Two thousand eight. Oh, okay. Oh well, happy like, so anniversary. This, yeah, it's our tenth anniversary. Okay, so, that's um, great. We started announcing. You know um, what? I just and I I I, I I'm going to talk about that a little bit later because I did see yeah. some of the repressings and um and yeah. the pressings that you have announced. But um, what was the? I think it goes like uh, Mexican summer. Then Sacred Bones and us. Oh, it's like each year is a 10, ten year anniversary. <laughs> but we, we each have like six months on each other or something like that. Um, but sorry, it's, go ahead. It's a huge accomplishment. Do you feel it? Are, are you proud um, of it? I do. But I mean, it's not that. 
it's not like luck. It's hard work. No, and, yeah, of and, course. And partnering, yeah. partnering with the right people and investing in the right things. Um, you know, I think I do wish there were more labels that kind of stuck it out that came around the time that we did or, right. or afterward. But it seems that people try for three or four years and stop. But kind well, of it took took us. I had a little bit of a leapfrog. Um, so I, you know, I, I had known a lot more people who were in pretty successful bands um, before we started signing bands. We would do one-off records. So, for mm. example, I mean, I knew John Dwyer for a long time, so doing an OCs LP was not an issue. And mm, I realized right. for their twenty-third release, not many, not many labels have that, um, you know, connect connection where you can. I know that I'm going to sell X amount of those, and it allows me to then you know, um, do take more chances too. But I mean, nepotism isn't going to be that far. I mean, John wouldn't let me put out a record if he thought I was an idiot. Yeah, it's true. So I mean, what was the music industry like in 2009 looking back? Um, I mean, streaming wasn't really around. It It was pretty much iTunes was, pretty much owned digital. There were other places that were trying. Most of them are not around anymore. The What was vinyl like in 2009? It's, it's hard great. for me to remember. It was good? Yeah, all this bullshit where people say, um, of talking about peak vinyl and mm-hmm. sales being higher than ever. It's not yeah. true. It's basically people started tracking vinyl sales more. Ah, uh. Back in 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, there were a lot of records that sold tons and tons and tons on vinyl, but they weren't being sound scanned. Right. Oh, um, interesting. Mostly also because major labels weren't putting out vinyl, and the indies weren't bothering, the smaller indies weren't bothering with sound scanned, or, or right. neither, were, neither were the independent record stores. So hmm. a Jay Retard, Blood Visions, or Black Lips Let It Bloom, like those records that came out on In the Red, they weren't doing sound scan and they sold tons and tons and tons of vinyl. Wow. Um, but you know, it won't show up, uh, because basically once the major labels started getting involved again and yeah, if you, if you print Pink Floyd, Rolling Stones, Beatles, Prince and Neil Young records, people will buy them. <laughs> and so you have this huge like bell curve of, Oh my God, vinyl sales are back. And, Interesting. Like, they never, they never went away. Yeah. And people that are talking about peak vinyl, where it's going to go down, it's like, well, how many times can you sell them, Sergeant Pepper? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah to me, that's it's true. Always been stable. Interesting. Um, having worked at a at a record label distributor in right out of college, and then working at a record store, I mean, it never went down. It's just that it got it started getting reported, and people started to once the major labels started putting it in their sound scan then Billboard reacts away. So you get all these stories about it. And yeah, that's right. It's, just, it's fabricated. You're, it's yeah. Not, it's a um, lot of clickbait. You're right. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. people worrying that it's going away. It's like, well, I'm not worried. <laughs> that's good. The time to worry about it. It's long come and gone. Right. You know, it's, it's, I think major labels will stop selling as much as they're currently selling because they're pricing themselves out. Right. You can't buy. They don't. They haven't figured out how to make a record and get it in a shop for less than thirty dollars. It's true. Yeah. I um, mean, if you can't, how many copies are you going to sell once you figure that out? And then our records are right next to it, and they're eighteen. Right. Um, yeah. 
there's nothing different about our two records. Yeah. You know, they're made at the same manufacturing plant. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I've always, we started doing, when the first couple 12 inches came out, I wasn't even doing digital, I don't think. So we really only started oh. doing digital seriously in late 2009. And that, so, and that was iTunes? Yeah. Primarily. There was, there was, there was other, there, sure. was, there was e-music. And there yes, was other, I remember e-music, yeah. Um, but iTunes was like the, the, big, the big dog or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, things started really changing around the time where we had signed Beach Fossils, Wild Nothing, Widow's Peak, and Soft Moon, and mm. pretty quick succession. Um, <laughs> And their LPs all came out. Their first LP, like Beach Fossils and Wild Nothing's first LPs came out on the same day. In oh my May goodness! In 2010, I so think I read that somewhere. Yeah. And then um, that kind of was the big pushed it over the top for us. So that was mid 2010. So before that, we were we were in a boutique label, but um, was was that like in in? I would never do that. I would never release two records on the same day, primarily because I couldn't keep up. With with the demand or the need to um, to push, well, I want to do it again. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, was it a it mistake? Be, or? It used to be pretty often. Really? Um, so it was yeah. intentional and everything. So like Sub Pop or Matador, they'd have big release days with two two or two big releases on the same day. It was a way to get people into shops to buy both products. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's still, I, it's I still see it still works that way to some extent. Like you'll have, we would never do it ourselves, but it's not the worst thing in the world for a record to come out on the to for a couple of big records to come out on the same day. There's obviously a competitive nature to that, mm-hmm. but it does drive people to the shop to buy multiple. Sure. Um, so they might they might take more chances than normally, as opposed to go to the store to buy one record. Um, I'm sure it hurts in the. I think streaming probably killed that, which is weird, because it seems kind of ironic that the that the basically the the free access to listen to. Uh, whatever the hell you want has created more of a monoculture than. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because yeah. I was going to say it. Actually, I think it would be it would be beneficial in the streaming um, environment because it's a buffet, and so I on Friday mornings I usually add five or six albums to my yeah. library. Yeah. You know. Well, I think it's mostly in the eyes of pitch people. Like, yes. Uh, yeah. Visual marketers, like, how much space are you going to incorporate on the on the app? Right. So right. on the day of release on Spotify, do we have? Oh, we lost out to whatever. Yes. I mean, it's not part of my job anymore to, to really. I have a guy who does our digital marketing now, but I mean, that I think has changed. A lot of things recently have changed up the way release dates come about. It used to be a little bit more. You could have a little bit more fun with it. Um, do you? Do you think? You know, one of the things I feel like you know, being just a you know a small time. Um, set up and I feel like every year I get the hang of one thing like playlists or vinyl pressings and then all of a sudden everything changes or or something yeah. becomes oversaturated and super competitive and I have to relearn how to to promote records yeah. again Our, that's how it that's how that's how it works okay <laughs> thank you there's no there's no like secret oh I was gonna ask you does like no. more established labels like do you become more stable are you less affected yeah. by that well, I mean, my frustration, I wasn't frustrated at them, but I had frustration with the fact that Matador and Domino and Sub Pop and all these labels that I really respected and looked up to had this vast catalog that they could rely on. 
forever, mm. essentially. Yeah. You know, and so if in our first couple of years of existence, I couldn't not everything had to be every release had to work in the scope that we saw it fit and cost the exact amount that we had available. Right. Because I didn't have the luxury of pavement albums or or anything like that in yeah. my catalog that are just constantly evergreen and yes yeah that's a hard part of growing a label and they had to do this they had to deal with the same stuff i'm not saying that they don't deserve yeah. it because they yeah. not work to make that catalog but it was definitely a struggle for us and only recently have we really felt the benefits of the catalog um and that i think is the only thing that the perseverance because the industry is constantly going to change but as long as you have a strong catalog no matter how people are digesting music um It'll take you over the hump through all the difficulties hmm. of fallow years and, and changes that are unexpected in technology and, and the way consumers react. That is that's really great advice. And I have and I mean I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast, but I have seen that um, that one of the the cool things about streaming is that it it sort of does away with the um, the newness of an album or the the release date or the importance of a release date where somebody could listen to one of our singer songwriter tracks you know six years later on a on a study podcast or on a study playlist and they wouldn't care that it's six years old or eight years yeah. old and i, I think that's yeah. great streaming and, and sync licensing if you're lucky enough to get it those are both things that are are beneficial to in that way um a quick, okay so according to your website your first bands who were Unknown at the time, you, you said, while nothing, Beach Fossils, Soft Moon. What do you attribute to their success and their their ascent from like when they started with you, they were new and unknown, to where they are now? Yeah, that's um, that was a two way street. I mean, they all, I, 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 for that period of time, I, I just had a lucky year that was not only, um, it was, it was like the second wave of this indie rock renaissance, right? So, okay. from the from the um, late '90s when you had the Strokes and the Walkman and all that stuff that was happening in downtown New York, and then you had what was happening in Chicago with post rock. I felt that the early and mid aughts, while there's some exceptions, it kind of got a little stale, and um, there was not enough punk or um, I don't mean like punk rock. Mm -hmm. I just mean there wasn't enough. It was all too kind of formulaic and a little too um, nice. Right. In a weird way. And there was, you know, there was other, other kinds of music had come and taken up what kind of like what's happening now. Again, it's a cyclical thing where other right. forms of music come in and, and take the the most exciting music, musicians and people who follow music, they got into noise and um, underground hip hop and house or techno or what have you. <clears throat> um, and then around you know 2006, 2007, I found that indie rock kind of got a little bit influenced from the garage and punk scene where there was this confluence and bands like Tyvek and Times New Viking and Jay Retard and Black Lips that were kind of hovering in both areas and still still touring small DIY spaces. Then you had all these bands spring up in all these different towns. So like Atlanta had, there was Black Ops, but then there was also Deer Hunter. And New York 
kind of had the scene that was Woods and Crystal Stills and Vivian Girls, and, mm. um, you know, which sprang out of, there was already a, a space for that music that Todd P helped create with all the DIY spaces and when they were doing shows for DFA and, and mostly noise artists and stuff. That, those two scenes kind of merged. And um, so it was a really good time. And then uh, Beach Fossils and, let's say, real estate were kind of in the second wave of that. Yeah, so this, yeah so I like, remember that. Uh, so like the pioneers, whatever, you would say of that little guitar scene in New York, in Brooklyn. And I had been touring and seeing like the fresh and only's and becoming friends with all these bands. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like the right time for people. People were interested in this kind of music, which seems crazy to say that people, people really weren't interested in two to three minute indie rock songs with guitar or synthesizer even, because we had electronic music from the beginning. If it had, like there was a clear divide between what was punk and garage, what was indie. So anyway, the, um, I'm kind of riding on that and Wood System um, had been around for a little bit. And so Beach Fossil was originally going to be signed to both Wood System capture tracks. I remember this now. Hmm. And um, which was weird. Wound up not happening that way, thankfully. <laughs> and we just signed them ourselves. And Wild Nothing, he actually, they actually knew each other. But I didn't know that when I signed Wild Nothing. Wow. They're both from Virginia and at roughly the same age. And, um, their best, their their girlfriends were each best friends. It was weird, and it was just <laughs> happenstance. Yeah. So I think people were, Pitchfork was a little bit late to the party on all that stuff, right? So they didn't yeah. even, they didn't even give Let It Bloom or Blood Visions a formal review till well after they came out, and they kind of caught up with Times New Viking and Tyvek. So they were looking for what what else is there, and that's kind of real estate and. Beach fossils and wild nothing all came in around that time, and then I just kind of like, well, it's great that people are interested in this kind of music that I'm interested in. So I just thought I'll just sign more bands that I like because it seems to be working. Mm -hmm. And so Soft Moon and Widow's Peak, although they don't sound exactly like those, I thought could fit in. Yeah. Um, and kind of opened up from immediately that we weren't going to be. I mean. It's stupid to say that if you're a fan of Soft Moon, it's impossible to be a fan of All Nothing. It's, I'm not saying that it's like, wow, these sound so different. But like we tried at the beginning already to have it be a little bit more open-ended. Um, you're talking about a little bit about like this boom in, in like indie guitar music. It kind of it it kind of it's reminding me of of this, in, and we were already kind of debunked one story of of the death of vinyl or the peak of vinyl. Um, um, but there has been like a dialogue of the death of the electric guitar that's happening in the last like couple of weeks. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> okay. What are your I thoughts like on that? I feel like saying the death of the cello. <laughs> right. Like how can there be the right. death of, of an instrument? Yeah. I don't, I don't care. I mean, it's just people are, it's, there's just it, it's kind of like radicalized headlines, which are totally, totally trying to grab just also people that are just trying to, People that are trying to make stances in their opinions about music, mm. um, if you don't like guitar-based indie rock, that's fine. But 
the end of the guitar is stupid because yeah, I I, I just mean, all kinds of music uses the guitar. Well, I as soon as soon as you say the death of the guitar, then people are going to pick up a guitar and make music with it because it's just the synths are are just because they weren't being used and they were just kind of sitting around. And so if 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 there's I mean, this, there was a time when people thought that no one would ever use analog synthesizers. I, I think they were thrown in the garbage, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, it's just. Yeah, it does. It's just that as as you stick around the music scene long enough, you just notice that everything is cyclical. Goes, right. This is right now what we're going through is very similar to me to let's say the late '80s, where the underground scene was kind of you had bands like REM. This is like pre-Nirvana, right? That were kind of becoming huge rock bands who came from the independent music scene, but also this desire, the strong desire for underground bands to cross over. Whereas before mm. that, and also in like the, the mid-90s independent scene and the 80s independent scene and the mid-aughts independent scene, we're all very much happy to be independent. And the artists, right. the labels, and everyone were happy to carve out their share and, and make it what they want. And then every 10 years or so this happens where there's this strong desire, there's a hatred almost for the sounds of whatever independent music are and to say that commercial music is better hmm. for whatever reason. And, you know, that's where we are right now. I mean, I feel like, you know, in the, it's almost like we're back in the pre-rock and roll era, not because... <laughs> yeah, Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, it's like Frank Sinatra <laughs> and Mitch Miller, like Patty, Patty Page. Yeah. Where you have these, they're kind of the Kanye's and the Beyonce's of their day or whatever. I mean, right. they're talented artists, but they're more, it's people buy into their personality and they're also in movies and it's this cross social thing that's not really related to youth yeah. at all. Yeah. Whereas it's not a youth culture. The current, the current music culture is not youth culture. And like, to me, that's kind of, where people can, anyone who thinks that they're in a golden age of music because people who are my age are listening to the same thing that people in their teens are, it's, dude, something's wrong, mm -hmm. which is what it was like pre, because pre, you know, Elvis Presley and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, and that kind of started youth culture hmm. where music had never been for youth before. Yeah. We didn't, we've only right. had, we've only really had a record industry in a sense since then. And really, LPs only totally. 60s. So, I mean, yeah. streaming is kind of like, we're kind of like in the 78 RPM days of, of streaming. <laughs> we're at the very beginning of streaming. No one knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, no one's made the huge breakthrough to see where it's going to go. Mm. And um, it to is me, the problem is that people don't see music. And this is related to what you're asking, even though I'm going off on a big No, it's, it's good. I love it. People don't really see music as the cultural, um, they don't see it as what is defining the culture. Whereas in the 90s, the early 90s and the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, it definitely did. And in the mid 50s when rock and roll started. So you had various kinds of culture underneath that, you know, but you would, you would go and um, at any point in time, it'd be like a record would come out, it'd be a big deal in the youth culture and everyone would go home and listen to it with their friends or whatever. 
which can still happen right now with streaming. It's not like something that's impossible. To me, the main thing is that music is just not considered important in the culture the way it used to be. Hmm. Like video games and, and, you know, uh, the internet and Twitter and social media and all these things uh, taken over from it. And that's not to say that it's better or worse. It's just the reality to live with. So, I mean, that's to me is why we have the music culture that we have and Mm. why someone like a Bob Dylan or a Neil Young or something like that won't have a number one hit because it's not, the audience isn't there to make it a number one hit. And it's not just because they're guitar based musicians. I could probably say the same whole bunch of other acts. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, you don't have, when you don't have the infrastructure to have a Nirvana or to even have a Prince really, um, you're not going to get one. Mm. Um, You're going to have what we have instead. I mean, there are talented artists within what we've created, a Childish Gambino's new video and all that. I mean, that's taking the place of it but it's like yeah but it's like that's a video and it's a social thing which is really cool it's a message and you know obviously there's music there too it's just it's different what is happening with that is what would used to happen to a big release or something yeah i think that the guitar based music to get back to the point um is kind of interwoven with that culturally as this thing that's what used to be important that isn't anymore and is now passe is not because of the instrument itself. It's just because of what the music represents. You know, it's kind of thrown in with that idea. And so, you know, there will always be fans of people who like guitar-based music, trust me. They sell a lot of records. I mean, even if you, even if they don't get any placement on Pitchfork, like the demographic for Pitchfork has completely changed hmm. um, on purpose. And it's not being driven towards that anymore. But if you look at large venues, see who's selling them. There's bands you've never heard of who are guitar-based bands that aren't getting, you know, they're not PR darlings because they don't have a story. And they don't have, like, uh, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, nothing, there's nothing within the social um, hemisphere that is part of what they're talking about. I mean, even with our own bands, I mean, Dive... And Mac DeMarco get far more coverage because of their personality. I mean, I love their music. Obviously, yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. But it's their personality that kind of, you know, dictates why they, why them, and not someone else. Yeah, on yeah. The label who I feel's music is, is equal. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to argue with it. You know, these private companies are allowed to talk about whatever the hell they want to talk about <laughs> it's the readership doesn't seem to want to veer, to veer elsewhere which i'm surprised with being someone who came up I'm like i'm a gen xer you know and i i came up trying to find music magazines and <laughs> trying to like staying up for 120 minutes and listening to all the college radio i can and tape trading and remember back then thinking like wow one day there'll be a technology where everyone can listen to whatever the hell they want. It won't be so difficult to hear about this stuff. And here we are. And the irony of that is that it's gotten probably even worse. Because That's interesting. Yeah, good point. used to have, I was reading an article, which was really funny. I think it was either Joe Strummer or maybe not Joe Strummer. Maybe it was like Rob Halford from Judas. Anyway, they were complaining <laughs> about like, Oh, it sucks. Like, if you don't get a good review in Sounds, Melody Maker, or NME, you're screwed. It's like, oh my God, there used to be three places, you know? <laughs> there used to be three places. And that's just in British uh, press. So you also had like Cream and, 
and Rolling Stone and all these places in the States where, and of course, college music um, ratings would matter and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And the, the scary thing about it is to me, and it's not to turn it into an episode of Black Mirror or something, but <laughs> once we put the limitless opportunities for people to listen to whatever the hell they wanted to listen to, it t- turns out they want to be steered more towards what they what to listen to, which right. I found it's kind of terrifying, but <laughs> interesting. Yeah. But I mean, it's still, this is the world we navigate and you have to find your way around it and find your audience. And until someone figures out, I don't even know if it will be a website, but what the next pitchfork will be. I mean, currently it's basically YouTube and Instagram. Yeah. Have, um, you know, that then, cause pitchfork aren't, aren't really, their directives aren't what they used to be in terms of what their, what I assume goals are and stuff. And um, the problem is that it's not their fault, but no one came up to to like try to uh, offer a varying opinion and do the same thing. Hmm. Why can't there be four websites or five or ten that are that have a following that are like premiering ten tracks a day and and giving reviews to five albums is a pretty easy formula to follow. Yeah. And all these labels still are creating these assets. Yeah. I mean, I'm That's sitting true. here making videos for what? What are we making videos for? Who are mm. we pitching them to? Yeah. I mean, you, you make them now almost as a artistic gesture and something to do with the band to help their touring or, or just think of a way to do something. But in reality, it's where are we putting this? Yeah. And, just up on your own YouTube channel. Places yeah. don't even host videos anymore. Yeah. So no, yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. Well, I love your perspective from from you know throughout the years and 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 talking about the industry because it, it's uh, it, it what's fascinating as I read back to you know to the Sun Records days and to the the Tin Pan Alley and and you realize how short this this whole thing has been. You know, the music industry as we know it is is younger than our our parents in some respect. And it's like, it, it's just, it's really interesting. I remember when people were talking about that iTunes spelt the death of the album and it's like, well, the album was only like 25 years or 30 years at that point. Like it wasn't, you know, it's like, we didn't even, um, it's not like it, it lived for centuries, you know, before us. And well, it's become an artistic expression that I don't think will ever go. I think it's great. I, yeah, no, absolutely. Not just because of rock and roll. When people say like, I was once giving a talk at NYU, and another label head, who I will not mention, hmm. was like, I predict the album, this was like five years ago, it's like, I'll predict the album will be dead in like three years. And I said, well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, there's no way. Because yeah. if you're talking about music that's always been singles-based, sure. I mean, because there is music that has always been singles-based mm-hmm. and will continue to be. Like, dance music has always been singles-based. You have people that are making great dance albums on purpose but in reality there it's always been a, like dance as pure dance music and also pop dance music has always been singles based market that's never changed the fact that it's it's kind of held that dance and hip hop have, have pretty much held the top part of singles for almost a decade now that's because that's what people listen to. It's not because it's albums. Hmm. It's, it's, like I said before, it's very much similar to what it was like pre-Elvis. It was this is exactly the same situation we were in then. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but at the time, you still had Miles Davis and John Lee Hooker and all these people making 
records and music and, and jazz more so than any other idiom took to the album before anybody else did is really where it became a full expression. Right. So it's a little bit, um, I would say, an uneducated thing to say that it's the death of the album because that's just kind of thinking only in realm of like rock and roll and rock and roll also, whatever subgenre of rock and roll, <laughs> you also need, people will always be held up and judged by an album, right? As a singer-songwriter, we've it's almost like why are baseball seasons 162 games and why is football season 62, 16 games? Mm. It's, well, because it's a history and we need to judge people based on their efforts versus history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you can't, you can't, well, this guy's a great fucking, he's a songwriter for the ages. He's up there with Paul McCartney because he had this one hit. That's not, you know, people who are, you're always going to have albums for that sense where this is, practice of touring and then you get home and you you have a bunch of songs this is no matter what kind of music you're making mm. you go into the studio and you make your next 10 to 15 songs you choose what the album's going to be and then you go promote it and you try to make the most artistic expression of that last year you had as possible people who predicted that it's the death of the album obviously have never been in a band and never toured right um, and the band doesn't have to be a rock and roll band it's like you know, it's pretty dim-witted. Well, um, yeah. No, it's I, I, I never really believe that. And I think, you know, you have the the younger people in their 20s uh, or, or even in their 30s who are in bands right now, they grew up on albums. And that's what they, they admire. And it's like the history thing you're talking about with sports. It's that, you know, these are people who grew up with OK Computer and they're trying to make their version of that. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a that's another subject the i think that on the converse side of that is crowdsourcing and the ability for anyone to make a record and release it does have a negative effect on especially guitar-based music Hmm. um the vetting process of independent labels and self-releasing having it cost money did do a lot of damage control um because if you can start a label with zero dollars and just have band and i love Bandcamp to death Mm -hmm. uh as a company and like and Kickstarter too. I think they're both great. But the problem that arises is that like anyone could just put ten songs together and I'm on I have or or forty. Yeah. And be like, I have four albums on Bandcamp, aren't I? Great. And it's like it's cool that you're able to share your music with that like that, but the echo chamber is insane. Right. And the process of really what a record label like when someone's like, I'm gonna start my own label. Well, you brought up Radiohead. They did that, and then they went back to XL. Mm. So that's kind of like a case study in and of itself. Like, True. what <coughs> if Radiohead can't do it? <coughs> you know, yeah. It's kind of like not to say that people shouldn't try, and 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 a lot of them will be successful starting their own record labels. Like, once you get to that point, that you can. Um, the problem is that if no one's there to to, to help do all the work that you shouldn't be doing. Like record labels and managers and booking agents, they're there so that as an artist, you're free to uh, write your songs, record your songs, and go perform your songs live. True. And, and then to also work, you know, work aesthetically on what, what your ideas are you trying to get across, what are, you, what are the visuals, and what are the things that are exciting to an artist, what they should be thinking about. And the record label is supposed to do all these other things. Um, so that is, 
I can go on forever about that. <laughs> Basically, whenever I get asked to do a music conference these days, that's always the subject. And they're like, hey, Mike, we'd like to invite you to Australia to speak on this panel. I'm like, let me guess. Why do labels exist? <laughs> oh, how'd you know? That's <laughs> what everybody asks me. Um, but, I mean, you find that the, the self-releases that actually work are few and far between, and the success stories are when someone's picked up from doing a few self-releases and they move on to a larger yeah. indie or major yeah. label. Well, but I, I think it's just too much music, and I think bands need to, like, like MySpace, for all of its problems, the beauty of it is that you can only put up five songs. Oh, right, that's right. forced people to, like, put up quality yeah, music. I remember that. And um, that's when I found all those bands. I mean, now when I get, hey, go to my SoundCloud, it's like 60 songs. Yeah, what Holy do you listen shit. to? Yeah, it's true. That's You're supposed true. to send... You're supposed to start playing lots of shows. Right. Get your band together and have two or three pretty good recordings of songs when you start talking to someone like me. Mm. Not a bajillion poorly recorded songs and you play one show. Right. This is a good segue. I want to, I want to ask you about your, your demo policy because the, the first thing you say, and I think this is really cool, the first thing you say is you're not looking for bands that sound like bands on your current roster which isn't always obvious to young indie bands. Like they think, you know, I made a lo-fi record that sounds like Mac DeMarco. I should send it to Mac so DeMarco's of, label. So many of those. <laughs> a drum now machine and shake. a Juno and electric guitar. On our other label, Cinderland, he's getting the same thing. And it's, Can yeah, you explain, I mean, expand that concept a bit? Sure. I mean, we definitely, but I'm happy that in our early days we had Wild Nothing and Minx and, and Crap Spells and Plows and there was... But we also had all these other, like Naomi Punk and stuff like that that was different on uh, soft metals and these purely electronic bands and stuff. And I understand that the bands that had that sound sort of had a, it kind of, there's no, I'd be stupid to think that that didn't kind of draw in a certain type of audience. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree with it still. I mean, look, I'll sign a band that sounds something like Blouse or something like beach fossils or dive but you better be that good and the fact is there's not that many bands that are that good mm. and not only that but that's like half the battle there's the touring the hard work yeah that really is that i have no control over there's so little that my label or any label can do for any band that's not going to play 75 to 100 dates in support of whatever album is coming out now that's a lot of hard work and it's you know that's the that's the reality though um, between the bands who have been successful on our label and the bands who haven't, a lot of it has been the hard work that the other ones weren't, weren't either able to do or didn't want to do. Um, you know, and waiting for it to get cushy and make enough money from touring to start is not the way to do it. And I think that, you know, I had lucked, lucked into a bunch of hardworking bands. I had no idea that Wild Nothing or Beach Fossils I had a feeling Max DeMarco would be hardworking because he did do a bit of touring uh, when he had like cassette-only releases. Right, he's so prolific too. Yeah, that I kind of got a plus. He's Canadian; they're always hardworking. <laughs> exactly. And um, you know, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, why would we only want to put out stuff that sounds like that? I mean, it's if there was labels that did that that were successful at it like say creation records or slumberlands early days and there was just a bunch of really good bands that sounded like that you know yeah 
there was a scene and the bands were playing together and then the label started signing them and then they heard another band that was great like discord same thing different kind of music you know early 4ad same thing work all these things all these these all develop from scenes with a bunch of talented people and then you know that's why you have a similar sound the fact of the matter is i just don't think there's that many bands that are that strong making that kind of music i think i had the best ones or amongst the best ones right uh you know like during that like i wish we had real estate but you know that was like <laughs> that was like you know what I'm, that's like one of my and kate Lebon, like Kurt Vile, these are people who I really respect as musicians that like would totally be on my label at that time had I gotten to them before these well, they're doing just fine, so I'm not worried about them, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But I mean like that those were the bands that I would that are kind of to me like of the same scale. And I don't think that I don't think anyone slipped under the covers, so to speak. No one no one came and went and weren't signed because their music was either amazing or they didn't put in the hard work of touring. Somebody might have put together, I have albums I put out that I think are great. People never toured. So Mm. what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was really, I mean, I, I I was interested in that demo policy thing because it's, I mean, I've seen it before too. It's like, you know, we're kind of a a small singer songwriter, folk singer songwriter label. And so I, but I find myself, when I'm looking for the something for for us that's next, I want something that's different. I want something that is like yeah. a, you know an electronic singer songwriter or you know something that uh, maybe more experimental or drone and you know um, and yeah. I don't, yeah it's no I hear you, yeah, you know what I mean you you kind of you don't get the good demos from those I, mean, I would love to put out uh, you know a purely experimental record. But I have to do all the footwork to find a really good one. I mean, I love that kind of music. I listen yeah. to it all the time. Just check my other label manufactured recordings for the reissues we do there. We do everything because I like everything. <laughs> the fact of the matter is I don't get those demos. Um, really? You I'm, just get I'm, Mac DeMarco demos? <laughs> no, I mean, we've done a lot of – we have signed artists off our demos. Recently. I mean, it's a great policy. I mean, when people read through it, I'm not. That's just the first point, but there's some really, really great points in there. And Molly Birch and, and Lena Tolgren were both signed via demo submissions. Mm. That was less than two years ago. Wow. And to me, they don't sound like anything else on the roster either of them. Mm. Now they're both female singer songwriters, so they tend to get lumped together, which is so lazy. It drives mm. me crazy. <laughs> Right. Yes, it's true. Nothing. They have nothing in common other than they play the same instruments. And I'm. I'm really. That's a whole other story. (laughs) I'm seriously amazed. Last week, when I was going through your your catalog, how many of these records I've come across myself over the past few years and loved so much. Um, I was thinking all yours. Nausea's is a huge record. I love craft spells. The wild nothing stuff. Um, Like, where do you? You know, we were talking about demos and, and a little bit of MySpace. Where did you normally find some of these bands? Well, my, MySpace at the beginning was amazing. It's funny to say that. Mm, but, yeah. <laughs> because I had, when I started the label, I very quickly planned out 10 to 12 releases. And they did well. And so we started getting, that's how I found out about Beach Fossils and Wild Nothing um, and Soft Moon. Because I started getting ads basically somebody would you know you have 33 new ads and then you look at them and see who's actually music artists 
And if I liked the name enough and I liked the image they had, I would go to the page and check it out. Uh. So, um, But that couldn't happen today. I mean, even if MySpace no. was still exist, just because you would be getting... And not just because Capture Tracks is a so big, but you would like the average person would be getting five thousand a day. Yeah, and, and everyone getting, has a band. Everyone, you know. Yeah. Well, because now you can, you can, you know, everyone now knows how to home record. Whereas so, it was there was still a novelty to it in two thousand eight. It must um, be hard to to be discerning then, is it not? I don't think so because the music's not good and the songwriting's fine. To me, it's a songwriting. I'm always, and it's not just like, do you write songs as good as yeah. whomever? No, it's no, com- yeah. It's not that. It's more like composition. Because Softmoon, I never considered, he doesn't like sit down and write a song. It's He's composing electronic music, let's say like dark electronic mm-hmm. music. And um, the composition is there for the music he's trying to create. It's successful. And Aesthetically, he already knew what he wanted to do. For me, I'd always respected labels that had a clear aesthetic in terms of what they look like, like 4AD early on, where all the art looked the same in Sacred Bones. And I yeah. respect that, but I knew Capture Tracks, I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted it to be open-ended in terms of um, basically we're, we're a service company to, to see through your aesthetic. Right. So yeah. whatever whatever vision you have for it, with our t- tweaking and you know bringing in people to clean it up and everything, and we like a lot of part of the deciding who to listen to is do they have it all figured out? Like the songs are good, the recordings don't matter that much. So it's the songs are good, they seem to seem to have something figured out in terms of what their vision is, and they don't they have their own thing. Um, so like Lena Tolgren, for example, I mean, I, uh, we opened up her demo. We liked the song because I mean, she posted up a pretty haunting DIY video of herself uh, just performing with an electric guitar. Hmm. And it was like, oh, this is clear to me. We know what to do. Yeah, right. And with Molly Birch, did this like amazing rendition of, I don't want to, these are Patsy Cline or Tammy Wynette song where... You know, just her voice was like, oh, my God, this is like a next level voice. <sighs> and she's like writing her own material. It's kind of rare where you have somebody with a knockout voice that's also comp- composing. Right. You tend to have, you know, it's very rare where someone is sort of a, where you have that raw talent of, of songwriting, mm-hmm. which is, doesn't matter how long you, you know your instrument. Like you could be, you know, like Jimi Hendrix is the best one of the best electric guitar players of all time. People don't give him credit for what an awesome songwriter he is. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys that had both talents. Neil Young, same thing. People forget how awesome of a guitar player he is because right. he's such a great songwriter. These are people that have both abilities, which is really rare. Yeah. So when you find somebody like that, you kind of just like, I'm not going to fuck with this. Yeah. Are she you, knows what she's doing. Are you involved with the recording process ever with the records? From an A&R standpoint, we'll make suggestions on early albums okay. with whom work with generally based on where the, the where they are right so i mean a lot of those early recordings we did a lot of work with jarvis tavernier because we trusted him and he was nearby and he did a good job and everyone was comfortable working with him so um that was when a lot more musicians could afford to live in brooklyn 
Are, <laughs> right. Are bands sending you like like mastered records and and you're signing them, or are they sending you demos expecting very, to re-record? Very rarely. Which yeah. one? Very rarely. What do you mean? Very rare. Like mostly, we're getting demos. Okay. Um, Molly yeah. Birch had almost an entire album recorded. It wasn't mastered yet. I don't believe. Maybe it was. Um. <clears throat> but it's it's very rare. Yeah. Someone's at that point already. The sad thing is that with Bandcamp is is that I found that you know these people will make like a beautiful record in their bedroom or you know in a local studio and then they'll upload it the next day to Bandcamp when it's like yeah. oh I wish you'd showed me that <laughs> you know Uh yeah no I have the same um Yeah that's kind of frustrating I think that actually happened with, uh, we were talking with um, 6131 Records, and that happened with Julian Baker's um, oh, first it? record. It, she had put it up uh, in like December on Bandcamp, and then right. they found it and then called her, and she took it down, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, I, l- let me ask you, so you're, you're coming up on 10 years. I, I saw something about the repressings that you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's something you're like slowly rolling out? Yeah, it's more or less um, some catalog items that some of them are out of print and they're getting a little bit of a a repress on a nice new color and stuff like that. That's and, fun. <clears throat> are you doing anything yeah, else? No, Any big celebration? We are. We're doing tours. So okay. we, uh, which we're focusing on our uh, young and upcoming artists. <clears throat> so we're doing, um, we're doing the show. And uh, Brooklyn Brewery uh, is hosting with us at Rough Trade that in here in Brooklyn. That's going to be uh, B Boys, which is a local band. Uh, Wax Chattels, who are yeah. excited about their band from New Zealand. It's going to be their first U.S. show. Um, and this band Gelset, who are on 2MR, our sister label, our electronic label. Okay. So that's like a show. And then there's the tour, which is going to be uh, Mourn and uh chastity they both have albums coming out yeah at the same roughly the same time in june and july so we're, we're calling that the ct10 tour oh great and there's another tour that we kind of have planned but where we haven't announced it yet because there's some sure. a lot of stuff to work out in the details and stuff but we i decided not to do a big festival thing because it's it's just too much work yeah and yeah it's um it's only been five years since the last one right so right it's just kind of like you can't do one every five years it's just kind of that's ridiculous um yeah. i i recognize a lot of the albums on your label mostly from the artwork <clears throat> there's a lot of and you, you talked a little bit about how you were an illustrator but there's a lot of covers here that have stood out to me over the past few years before i even kind of put the connection together that they're all in the same label what role does album art have with your label? Because is is it like a coincidence? Because all of your albums have such great art. I'm I mean I'm looking at the Bandcamp and it's it, it they're phenomenal. Well, a lot of the people that work here, including myself, worked at record stores, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of the artists that we work with have a visual background. But also, we have two very talented people that do design and layout with us and i have a very i'm really picky and persnickety about what an album cover is so yeah me too i have yeah. uh, i have the uh final say from the gm perspective <laughs> all right or not. but we all have ideas about what the album cover should be like and of course the artist has his final say yeah uh, but i mean yes i think because we all come from a record store background we're very very 
um, into what it will look like when it's printed on 12 by 12 as right. opposed to what is this going to look like as a little square on, <laughs> on, on the computer. And it's like I, nothing bothers me more than font being too big and stuff like that. That's part of the digital age, you know. Yes, yes. If you look at, if you look at an older record, I mean, all the font is tiny. Yeah, and I like it that way. Yeah, yeah, or hand um, hand drawn, or yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's why. But we think what is going to what is going to stand out at the record store? You know, even if you're trying to make a subtle looking cover, what's gonna what's gonna actually like have people stop and wonder what it is? You know. I like that thought process because I've actually had quite a few arguments with artists about the importance of of uh album art because you know some artists are not um that interested in it and they say you know i was talking with an artist last year and they say like he said it doesn't matter to me what an album art looks like when i'm listening to a record and he's like so i really i really don't care you know and well I, they should care because a lot of other people do <laughs> that's what, well thank you <laughs> i'll, well, I'll let you from the digital tell. perspective even if you're not someone who listens to right media yeah. you still have you still your sleeve is up there with everyone else's on spotify it's yeah like when you had that kind of pastel fury of 2010 and 11 where every record was pastel it was driving me crazy and even our artists were like i want to sing pastel i'm like god yeah. damn it i'm so sick of pastel <laughs> Because it's it just this just wash, you know? Yeah. And I tell people, like, go to a record store and tell me that this is going to stand out. Because right now you're looking at it on your, on your in, probably in an email, on your iPhone or on your desktop, and it has zero competition. It's not competing with anything right. in your space. Right. But, like, go to, go to iTunes, go to Spotify. Like, think about it that way. Yeah. Like, it needs to have some kind of... Um, I'm... I mean, job being, being from... You know, I went to Parsons School of Design, so whenever I hear some an artist say that they don't care, I'm like, oh my god, heart attack. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> I'm with you there. Yeah, I know, I'm with you there, and that's the. I, I mean, I, I've always, I mean, I remember the the Wild Nothing, um, the Nocturne album. Like, I, I remember seeing that years ago, and yeah. just being like, I got to listen to that. <laughs> like, yeah. It yeah. was Jack. Jack picked that out, and I had talked to the person in the photo. It was a self portrait, and uh, a lot of Photoshop. Wait, which one are we talking about? Oh, you're talking about Nocturne. Nocturne, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that one's complete. Yeah, that one was an That's interesting one. It was beautiful typography. Jack and I. Boy, I, I bet you'd really like to know what happens next in this story. And I'm going to interrupt this conversation, not intentionally, but unfortunately, accidentally. Um, Pro Tools had crashed. We recorded this actually in the summer of 2018, and, um, and uh, Pro Tools crashed because I was so into this conversation with Mike. And just after this conversation of artwork, we flipped over to the grand finale of talking about Mac DeMarco and how they discovered Mac DeMarco and, and that relationship and how it blossomed. And I, I'm telling you, it wasn't recorded, and I'll never make that mistake again, and I haven't since. But um, it was a great conversation, and there was some really cool things I learned about how Mac... Uh, came to sign to capture tracks now and actually as you're listening to this mac has now gone on to start his own label which is another cool little thing um and maybe one day we'll interview him about that label but um i apologize that we did lose this um, but all credit to mike because 
we had corresponded over the summer and they had a, they've had an incredibly busy summer with with some huge releases coming out and not to mention their 10 year anniversary and um and so all credit to mike we really tried to get back together to to redo that uh, part of the conversation about mac but um we weren't able to make it happen the summer was just so busy with family stuff and then of course um these guys released chastity a new record from chastity and then this fall they released the new wild nothing record um and uh and then of course uh, some some reissues that have been happening make sure you check them out at capturedtracks.com and thanks to mike for doing this and thanks to, for being so kind and so responsive to my emails i've he, since seen him in so many different publications he's such a um a sought after dude so i was so blessed to be able to talk to him for the the hour that um i i was able to get this summer and i apologize to you the listener that we lost the rest of the conversation so two things i will do moving forward number one i'll always keep a, an eye on pro tools and make sure the clock is running and i won't get so involved in the conversation that I forget that it's crashed. And uh, number two is I won't save the juicy best stories for last. I'll, um, in this case I did, and uh, we missed out on that and I apologize. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and uh, please check out our sponsor. It actually really, it, you know, if you're interested in, in learning more about uh, how to f- to further your career as an independent artist, as a DIY artist, or as a DIY label who promotes records, um, check out ebook.otherrecordlabels.com. And um, that's something, checking out Mike Warner's book, I think would be really beneficial. And it, it honestly just helps us as well. The coupon code is OTHER. Thanks for listening. <laughs>